0: The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Troy, it is time for our famous segment, another Revive Thoughts book giveaway. Yes, we
2: know you're on the edge of your seat. You're wondering when a free book would come your way or at least the opportunity to win one. This next book... Is coming again from Banner of Truth. We really highly recommend that you follow them. Great Instagram, books! Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Go check them out. Go buy a couple of their books. Support the work they're doing. And this book is called The Savior of the World, and it's by BB Warfield. And it's going to be announced next week.
3: Yeah, one week so from from the time you're hearing this. Hopefully,
2: you hear it the week it airs. Yeah, if you're the- hearing this, you know, in December, if
3: it's snowing outside, you might be a little late. The books already given away. Yeah, but next week, in this one little bit teaser of what's coming next week, we're gonna have a BB Warfield episode.
2: With a B.B. Warfield book giveaway. With a B.B. Warfield book giveaway. Win-win. Well, it's a win for the winner. So if you'd like to win, we (laughs) highly recommend that you share this episode on social media. If you share it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, tag in a son, all three. People have wondered, well, if I share it on two social medias, can I get entered in twice? Sure. Yes. Because we won't know that's your name anyway. Usually people have weird names for Twitter and Instagram, so it's no big deal. An entry is an entry. And we also, again, wanted to recommend you go check out the guys at Banner of Truth. All right, so we'll get on with the show, but The Savior of the World by the famous B.B. Warfield and next week, B.B. Warfield sermon. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revived Thoughts.
1: And yet, how much is implied by such a simple belief? And how much does Paul himself encourage his disciples to draw from it?
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver today. We're hearing a sermon preached by W.C. Lake, but as you've noticed from our episode title, this episode's actually about Waite Sterling. We will explain as we go. This sermon was preached in 1869, and it's titled The Faith and Work of a Pastor.
2: So one of our favorite things to do on this show, and if you're listening to this episode by Waite Sterling you already know this because there's a different group of people who listen to our Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon sermons and the ones who listen to Wade Sterling. Now we have a pretty, it's not a significant, significant drop, but we do notice a difference in downloads. But some of you already know that these people you probably never heard of are some of the best preachers, have some of the most interesting stories. And this one is no different. Wade Sterling has an incredible, incredible story of how he got to be who he was. And I looked really hard to find a sermon about him specifically uh, or by him, but one did not exist. But I did find this sermon about his consecration, which in some ways is actually the perfect sermon, I think. And it was a two-for-one because this sermon itself is actually really, really good. It's fantastic. So this is a two-for-one episode, and I am really excited to bring it to you. And I've been waiting for this one to come out for a while. So I'm and just overall just really excited. Sometimes I we think a sermon is not just powerful in history, not one of the greatest sermons of history, just because of who preached it, but sometimes because of who was in attendance during that sermon. Uh, the right person hearing the right, the right sermon at the right time. The man who preached his sermon was W.C. Lake, and he is called the rhetorician ret- ret- and was a part of the Church of England, and that's really all I know about him. He's he's almost, he, I'm sure he's extremely important in the kingdom of God, but there's not a lot of history about him. However, I do think his sermon that you're going to listen to is fantastic. But we really wanted to focus on the man who was in attendance, the man who was being consecrated to go out and preach the gospel. Wait Sterling. He would be called God's Lonely Sentinel. Because for a time, he'd be the only missionary to a tribe of people that killed the last missionary force that came to make contact with them, and he'd literally be at the bottom of the world on one of the last islands in South America.
3: Wait Sterling. He was born in the year 1829 in Dartmouth, England. He had a really big family, 13 brothers and sisters. One of his brothers would actually accompany him in some of his mission work. His dad and uncles were famous naval officers along with a long list of feats around the world. It's kind of crazy to think about like his parents or his, his father and his uncle probably at war with America or, yes. or the Napoleonic Wars, you know, against the French. Yep. Wait, Sterling's story actually, I mean, I think ends up being a little bit even more interesting Growing up, he didn't get far enough along in schooling to become a part of that same naval legacy that the rest of his family had obtained due to a severe illness that he got growing up. He spent years wandering around the countryside for fresh air to keep himself healthy. He was eventually
2: tutored, and then
3: he would go on to Oxford. And it was here he would meet Captain Alan
2: Gardner. Alan Gardner is an important part of Waite Sterling's story, so we're going to tell you a little bit about him if you have never heard of him. Alan Gardner was a famous name from the War of 1812. He had helped capture an American ship and take it back to Britain. He also explored places like Newfoundland. He became a Christian on a voyage from South Africa to China, and he wanted to share the gospel, but he he just never found a good opportunity. Eventually, tragedy struck his family, and his daughter or his wife died. I saw two different sources say two different things, but I actually think it might have been his wife. Uh, this caused him to rethink his life a little bit. He'd felt a call to missions work and he since he had converted now he was just like I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna go forward with it. So first he went to South Africa for four years he set missionary stations across South Africa with the Zulu people. He was there before Livingston ever got there and if you haven't listened to our episode on David Livingston and that same region, we highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, then he went on to chile where he set up missionary efforts on the islands around the falklands uh, called tierra del fuego it
3: was called the land of fire and it sits at the most southern tip of south america yeah so we're way down south on the continent of south america Captain Alan Gardner worked really hard to to get missionaries and mission stations set up around this area. For a decade, he, he spent his time recruiting, trying to get missionaries to go to Patagonia there. Patagonia was a large land between Chile and Argentina. He would go back and forth recruiting different people, and eventually he had a team of six missionaries who were going to start a missions outpost there in the land of Tierra del Fuego. They arrived in the year 1851, but immediately ran into... Problems. There was a series of events. They left their hunting gear on a boat, and the land was really barren. So that's a bad combination when you can't hunt, and there's not much there to hunt to begin with. The locals there were somewhat hostile towards them. They wanted nothing to do with them. So they were having trouble finding food anywhere. Months went by. And there was supposed to be another shipment that had some rations and some other team members coming, but it never did, that boat never showed up. It turns out those supplies were delivered to another island and they had no we they had no boat, no way to get to those other supplies at that time.
2: And this is where the story gets a little sad, but the whole team would starve to death. Uh, One by one, um, they would go until Captain Alan Gardner, the man who had led them there, uh, was the last one to die. And a year later, an expedition was sent to check on them. And the group was found on the island that they had all died. Uh, there's a drawing. A man I saw did an illustration of Alan Gardner. He was the man of saw him. And he drew a picture of it. And he was dead. He found him dead on the ground, clutching a diary. And even though it had been water damaged, it was still readable. And there was this prayer written for the mission. And it. I think it gave a really good insight uh, into what he was thinking. Grant, O oh Lord, that we may be instrumental in commencing this great and blessed work. But should you see fit in your providence to hedge up our way, and that we should even languish and die here, I beg you to raise up others and to send forth laborers into this harvest. Let it be seen for the manifestation of your glory and grace that nothing is too hard for you. And one of the very last signs written in this diary said this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression. And would not have changed situations with any man living that heaven and love and Christ were in my heart this journal became famous they published it they told everyone about it and they ended up
3: inspiring many 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 people to the mission field this was the captain Alan Gardner that Wade Sterling met the year he left for that trip in 1851 this was that relationship he, he had with this gentleman in 1851 alan gardner left on this trip he would die on this trip in 1852 wait sterling the subject of this podcast he was ordained and then a year later in 1853 he was married and he felt a calling to that land to that area where captain alan gardner had attempted to reach and had died trying tierra del fuego in 1859 another disaster occurred on these islands a ship named the Allen gardner named after alan gardner was supposed to return with some missionaries that were set up at an outpost and when it did not they sent men out to investigate the missionaries had been teaching english and working with the locals there however one of the missionaries complained stuff was missing and when they searched the camp of the locals there they found This stuff, it had been stolen from them, and when they attempted to take it back, a huge fight broke out, and there was a lot of bloodshed. A lot of locals attacked the missionaries and essentially killed all, but there's one lone survivor, a cook, that hid as soon as the fighting began, and he was the one that was able to give this report about what had happened there.
2: After all of these bad things are happening, most missionary societies are just basically pulling out of the area due to the hardships. Uh, But Waite Sterling sailed right for the land. He went straight there. He arrived around 1860 and he was put in charge of the work going on there. He traveled back and forth and he was traveling on that same ship, the Allen Gardner from the guy he once knew, but it was not without its toll on him personally. His wife, never one who had great health uh, suffered a lot of anxiety worrying about his traveling and and the weather there was very cold and damp and it did not do well for her sadly in 1864 she would die after years of back and forth and hostility wait sterling had a new bold plan in 1869 he decided he would just go and move and live right there on the island set up a hut right next to their village and just live with them and try to gain the trust of the people there and so he did just that, and for seven, basically a, a boat showed up, put him there. He went into the village, built a hut to live among them, and for seven months he was by himself. He was called God's lonely sentinel because he saw himself at the tip, at the end of the edge of the edge at the end of the world, as the leader of God's southernmost army.
3: After about a year of him doing work down there, a boat showed up and someone got off the boat, not even knowing if he was still alive or not, and asked around for Wade Sterling, if Wade Sterling was still there, if Wade Sterling was still alive. And when they made contact, this messenger told him that he needed to be consecrated by the Church of England as the Bishop of the Falkland Islands. He was indeed alive and he had seen success where others had not as bishop of the whole area of the Falkland Islands, he didn't get to spend as much time with the people of Tierra del Fuego, but his missionary zeal and his work continued to see progress into uh, a people that were once very hostile against him and the message of Christ. We're now seeing great fruits and great conversions among the people. And to this day, there is a Christian community there that celebrates Wait Sterling and thanks him for bringing the good news of christ to that area this sermon was not preached by wade sterling but it was preached at his consecration it's a sermon that both recognizes all he has done but also at the same time it's a sermon that sent him back out to finish the work that he had started
1: Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These words given to Titus are one of those commands carrying with them a statement of doctrine that occurs so regularly in Paul's writings. They condense into a few vivid sentences almost the whole spirit of the faith in which he lived and taught. They are brief and clear. They do not care to set before us a long list of truths which we must believe. They even leave out many points which Paul thought were important. Instead, they fix our gaze almost wholly upon one great object, one Lord in whom we have redemption through His blood, and who is the Son of that one God who is above all, and through all, and in us all. And yet, how much is implied by such a simple belief? And how much does Paul himself encourage his disciples to draw from it? A belief in Jesus as the Son of God, and therefore a belief in the great miracle of the Incarnation, a belief that He has been declared to be the Son of God with power, and therefore a belief in the great miracle of the resurrection, a belief that He acts upon us still, and therefore a belief in that Holy Spirit which He promised as our teacher and comforter, a belief that He will come again to judge and to save, and therefore a belief that we will all one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will receive the things that we have done in our bodies, whether it be good or evil. And why are these solemn truths brought before us again and again so emphatically? Simply that they may become our incentive to earnest Christian action. Simply that it may make us, as Paul afterward adds, to be careful, or as the Greek word more forcibly expresses it, to stand steadfast in all good works simply that they may make the chief Christian pastors feel that they are indeed a city set upon a hill, and the very light of the world, that we may be the very salt of society. So all-powerful is Christ's truth, it will make believers into heroes and saints. I deduce from this passage, combined with the whole tone of Paul's teaching, three points Which I believe are characteristics of followers of Christ. First, that it claims to be a real special revelation to be accepted by the soul and should be held with confidence. Secondly, that in its fundamental doctrines it is simple. And lastly, that by reason of this very simplicity, much is left to the conscience and judgment of every man as to the course he may think it right to follow in advancing Christ's cause in the world. On this last point, the apostle dwells more powerfully on some other occasions than this one in Titus. You can find it in passages where he calls every man to be fully persuaded in his own mind, and yet reminds us that we have no right to judge another man's servant. It is best that we recognize the large wisdom of true Christian teaching and the principles which have best guided Christ's church in its progress to the world. Firmness in a special faith which is born when prayer and holy living with a large and generous tenderness towards others, then we will have confidence towards those we disagree with. Let us first see if their works show that they stand to their own master, and that he will hold them up. We should have absolute indifference whether they agree in minor matters, provided we are assured that they do so in love toward their Lord and ours. Yes, these, I believe, to have been principles which have animated the best Christians in every age. It is these principles alone that could keep Christianity alive over the hearts of a thoughtful people. I may even venture to go farther and to say that the, that as these principles that have always marked that portion of the church to which we belong more than any other body of Christian men, so also are they eminently those requirements which alone make it possible for the bulk of men in a thoughtful country to unite in a joint worship and belief, without which nothing like a national church would be possible. Can you create any greater calamity to happen to a church than that those who are men of love and God's spirit should be debarred from at once leading and serving their brethren, unless they agree with every word of some human and exacting creed? Can you, on the other hand, conceive a greater blessing to any church than this? I put it very simply, that when she has such devoted Christian men in her service, she should know how to use them. It is on these accounts that I will bring these thoughts before you and on an occasion when three of our brethren are about to be consecrated as chief pastors over so large a portion of Christ's church, and at a time which, as much as any other since his religion came into the world, demands that our teachers should be men of power and love and a sound mind they must be gifted with that largeness of heart and mind which may at once win souls to Christ and adopt His truth to the ever-new needs of men. In the first place, I say very plainly that no man, and still more, no pastor of Christ's flock, can ever hope to do anything for Christ unless he starts with a firm belief in Christ Himself. Christianity has been, from the very first, and above all religions in the world, the most special in its claims. There are and always have been men in the world who hold that any such thing as religion, i.e. any knowledge of the relations in which we stand to our Maker, is not attainable by man. There are sincere lovers of truth, and more perhaps in this generation than in any other, who unhappily hold this opinion. We can at least understand their point of view, however strongly we may disagree with their convictions. But I am persuaded that I will find such men agree with me in principle when I say that any religion professing to be a a revelation from God must be special in the fundamental truths it asserts. And Christ's claims and those of his apostles allow no imperfections or mistakes. If this were not so, indeed, I use the words of Dr. Arnold, if the sense of the scriptures, on any important point, might fairly be doubted by honest and sensible men, it is no better than a mockery to call them our rule of faith. It is imputing something insignificant to God's revelations, such as attaches to the words of no philosopher and no human legislature. Now the one fact of Christ's religion, which is implied in almost every word which he or his disciples have written, is simply this, that Christ is God. He himself says, if we are to credit the report of his nearest friend, that he and the Father are one. He himself said, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. He himself, when he added, I am with you always, even to the end of the world when he sanctioned our solemn commission, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a bishop in the Church of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And the one great truth to which his chief apostle is never tired of recalling his hearers is this, that if Christ is not raised, our preaching is vain and your faith is worthless. This, I repeat, is indeed the one theme of every discourse and every letter of St. Paul from the very first words spoken to an, at Antioch down to the last epistles he wrote. The prospect is of Christ's death. Is he speaking to the inquiring Athenians? He sums up his argument by saying that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained, and he has given proof to men in that he has raised him, from the dead. Is he addressing his own converts? He says, Those who are set over his flock to remember that the Holy Ghost has made them overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Is he stating his own case before Festus and Agrippa? The conclusion which makes Festus pronounce him mad is still the same, that Christ should suffer and should be the first to rise from the dead. In a word, whether he is beginning or ending every letter, he does it uniformly in the name of Jesus Christ, declared to be the Son of God with power, of Christ, risen from the dead, and who has become the firstfruits of them that sleep, of Christ, whom God has raised from the dead, and set at his own right hand in heavenly places. So certain is it that, if words have any meaning, no man can truly call himself Christ's disciple who does not accept this all-containing doctrine of faith in him and will not say with Peter, You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This thought is the first that this service today makes us think about, my brethren, that those who come here were, more, were moved by the Spirit of God to receive a call, and to undertake a work which drains, oh, we have lately had many proofs that it does so, all the best energies of heart and head, that they come only in the name of him who out of weakness can make strong. They come not with high hopes, nor with thoughts of high place and rank among the children of God. They come, permit me here to use the words of the one whom we are soon to pray, not in the strength of a firm will and of a determined purpose. No, they come saying, O Lord Jesus Christ, cleanse us as we kneel today before you. Draw us with cords to the foot of your cross, so that under the shadow of that cross we may live all the rest of our lives, and there we may be safe. They come, if I may add the more exulting words, which immediately follow, to proclaim to men that the work of Christ's resurrection was the news of a great victory and the assurance of a great triumph, that it crowns the work of Christ and that it exhibits the love of God that was expected by prophets. This was witnessed by the apostles and is the foundation of apostolic doctrine, and that the chief purpose of the apost- of the apostles' office and we may well add the bishop's office, as St. Peter declares, is to bear witness to the resurrection of Christ. I don't know that we can have truer words to give the first keynote to our prayers today, or make us feel that in the farthest islands of the South, or in the apparently easier but just as hard work of England, the life, the tool in every part, the pulse of the regenerate heart, is the true love of Christ the Lord, as man believed, as God adored. But then, in the second place, as it is essential to the reality of the followers of Christ, essential to its power in the world and to its influence over every thoughtful mind, that its claims and credentials should be special. So I venture to say that it equally belongs to Christ's teaching, that its essential and necessary character should be simple. I cannot pause to ask why this should be so, although I believe that if you examine both the character and the motive of every work done for Christ, it matters not by whom, be it by foreign or by home pastor, be it by Roman Catholic or Moravian missionary, be it by Wesley or or Xavier, or by the honored revivers of religion in the last century in England, or in our universities 30 years ago. It has always been simply in the name and in the power of the love of the Redeemer of man but it is not my object to dwell on this now. What I urge is simply that Christ and his apostles do not demand, as of necessity, a belief in any doctrine which does not spring immediately, which is not made by scriptures to spring immediately, from that divine character of the Savior on which I have dwelt already. This may seem to some to be asserting too little to others, for others too much. But I am urging this point now simply as expressing the convictions of the Christian church from the very earliest ages, and I am persuaded that for all thoughtful and sensible Christians, it is a matter that is absolutely certain. What are the most certain records of the early belief of Christianity for three centuries? It will hardly be denied that they are to be found in the two great creeds, the Apostles and the Nicene. Now, let me remind you shortly that there is scarcely a great writer in antiquity, or in our own church, who has not spoken of the Apostles' Creed very much in the language of Hooker, as that brief confession of faith which has been forever the mark of the church and badge which identifies Christian men from infidels, or who has not added with Pearson that whatever is delivered in the creed, we therefore believe it, because it is contained in the scriptures." Perhaps I might go farther and might say, with the greatest of our preachers, Jeremy Taylor, that we have no other help in the midst of these distractions than to be united in that common term, which, as it constitutes the Church, so it is the medium of the communion of the saints. And that is the Apostles' Creed. But I will rather ask you to observe how little, how almost nothing is mentioned there which does not spring from the most necessary and unavoidable consequence from the two cardinal truths of our religion, that Christ is the Son of God, and that he rose again from the dead. Will it be answered that the divinity, both of the Savior and of the Holy Spirit, are asserted in the Nicene Creed in language more special than we find in Scripture? Even if I were to allow this, which I certainly do not, it would only strengthen my argument by showing that the early Christian church, even when it went beyond the language of Scripture, did so only when it spoke of the divine character of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the conclusion seems to me irresistible, that when we are speaking of the true test of belief in Christ, if any can be more true than a Christian life, We have no right upon any grounds of revelation, of reason, or of Christian practice to ask more than was asked in those great days when suffering and martyrdom still offered the best security for the soundness of Christian faith. And I won't allow it to be said, permit me to anticipate this objection, that such an argument as this slights or ignores the large amount of Christian doctrine which has met the needs of successive generations and it is a noble inheritance of Christian thought and of Christian truth. No honest thinker can refuse to acknowledge that if Christianity was constantly to influence the world, it follows as a matter of course that it should have fresh thoughts to meet the fresh questions of every age, that the wisdom of the church should be treasured up at least as eagerly as we treasure the wisdom of a great human teacher. If we did not acknowledge this, we could scarcely maintain that Christianity had any history at all. But I am not one of those who believe that the earnest thoughts of great Christian men, the thoughts in past ages, have been the life of millions of believers, should ever perish. No, we can thankfully cherish the deep doctrinal truths which the almost-inspired genius of Augustine, and Bernard, has preserved for us. We can rejoice that in the age of deadness the Church has awakened to life by the fresh preaching of justification by faith, and we can be grateful that the great men of later ages have each left their legacy of truth to strengthen the body of Christian doctrine, and that we can believe that no earnest teaching of the atonement or of the sacraments is ever lost, but serves us by putting truth in new lights and kindles anew the faith of the Church." To say this is no slander against the essential simplicity of Christian teaching. It is only to believe that the scribe instructed to the kingdom of God is always bringing out from his stores things new and old. The great Hooker declared boldly that he would not believe that the thoughts of our forefathers in the faith had perished if we whose duty it is to study the noble records of Christian life and thought take pride in believing that the church that the teaching of every age of Christianity still lives among us that we are indeed the heirs of all the Christian ages, and that our paramount belief in Christ as the foundation enables us to study, to enjoy, and to adopt those thoughts and practices by which Christ's church, fully framed together, has grown into a holy temple in the Lord. Third, I have dwelt so far upon the certainty and simplicity of faith as both are essentials to Christianity, and because I believe that it is only by the union of these qualities that it can hope to hold its place in the world. But before I close, let me refer to another characteristic of its spirit, of which I have spoken of as being no less essential. And this is the large variety and freedom which it allows to sincere believers in the different manner by which they may work out, and by which they always have worked out, some loving more the doctrinal, others the moral side of Christian truth, their great first principle of belief and love to Christ. If only I could speak of this as an obvious and elementary truth. But oh, we know too well, my brethren, that it has never been so, and that we have still to ask St. James a sad question. From where come wars and fighting among you? What is sad is that not that we differ, differ largely even in the same body. Differences, say it again, are inseparable from the activity of thinking minds. And as such they are even a true part of the providence of God. But our fault is, and let no man here accuse his brother, it is the fault of all of us, that even in our differences we cannot combine in keeping the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And yet I believe it has always been the best men who, while standing most earnestly to their own convictions, have still striven most to realize this unity of charity, and these have aspired to that great beatitude of being peacemakers among their brethren. Bear with me for a short time longer while I show you that this desire to give free and fair play to their brethren has ever marked the best men, and how among ourselves it offers us almost our only hope that our church may still be God's instrument for doing His chief work in England. First, I maintain earnestly that in the earliest and best days of the Church the greatest men were largely tolerant of differences of opinion, and were ever ready to be charitable to the arguments of those whom they saw to be truly serving Christ. One single instance is enough to show my meaning. We all know that the greatest conflict of early Christianity was against Arianism, and the one man to whom we have perhaps owed the most since St. Paul was Athanasius. St. Basil, the greatest name in the Greek church, and who, as Dr. Newman has observed, owed the success of his great episcopate to the support of the common man, was constantly harassed through through life with the charge that he was an unbeliever at heart. He was in fellowship with the enemies of Athanasius, and he had resolutely refused to separate himself from these friends of of his from an earlier life. Because of this, he was denounced to Athanasius by others as unfit to be a bishop. How did Athanasius act? Did he demand from Basil some fresh assurance of his adoption of the Nicene Creed? No. Instead, he, the great father of orthodoxy, simply wrote to instruct Basil's church to obey him. And he added that he had but lowered himself to the infirmities of the the weak, and that they might be very happy to have for themselves as bishop, a man so full of wisdom and of truth. Now, I do not rely too much upon historical parallels, but this is one from which I believe that even in these days we may learn a lesson. What Basil did, and Athanasius commended, we should not be afraid to imitate. And lastly, this attitude has in great measure marked church history, and is an absolute necessity for the future history of the church. I cannot deny that there are some passages in the history of our church, as there are in the history of every church and every nation, which we might well wish to be blotted out, times when the errors of her rulers have obscured large principles and and the charity on which she is founded. But no fair mind can fail to see that in the very fact of having been for three centuries the church of a free people, the Church of England, if she has had a great, has also had a difficult part to play. A church founded as this one was, I would dare to say, is a sign of a church that has a thoughtful laity, and for which, if it were destroyed, such men would find no other substitute and will never, may we be sure, take a narrow view of Christianity. It will endeavor while it holds fast to Christ, both to meet the demands of growing thought and to adapt itself to the religious wants of a great Christian people. And we may well be thankful to God when he places amongst its chief pastors men capable of stirring the very depths of Christian conviction and of Christian practice. No doubt, like many other great positions, it has been often degraded by sloth and selfishness. It still has its temptations to ease, to pride, and to worldliness. Surely, to a man with the noblest objects of Christian duty before him, there is still no other place in the whole land which has such great opportunities, or which so completely possesses the key to the respect and affection of every class in the country. Take a bishop of real self-devotion, of a genuine and manly enthusiasm in whatever he undertakes, and of large sympathies, and what nobler place can be given him by God, than one in which all men will gladly take him for their example if he proves himself worthy of being so. And if so, he may well attain great social objects. For he is indeed the natural friend of every class in society, and experience has shown us, most of all in these last thirty years, that no men are so ready to pour out their money with boundless generosity as those who have won it by their own labor. What won't they do if they are but once under the spell of a real man who has found his way to their hearts? But he may also achieve great objects for the church, of which he is a minister. He will find it divided to outward appearance, but with an abundant zeal and energy, which a a just and kind ruler may know how to combine and harmonize, if he is too thoughtful to be what is called a party man. His study will then be to be above all things just, and to be kind and sympathetic to everything that is like sincerity and earnest belief. And such justice and kindness always makes itself felt, because it is the surest evidence of that reality of character, without which all other gifts are merely tinsel. In this way he will soon rally all men round him, because he will make them feel that he has a heart large enough to understand and to love them all. Any man, indeed, to do this must be a man of self-command, and of Christian prudence, and above all, of prayer for that humility without which the greatest natural strength may turn to weakness." But one or two men of this earnestness and of this self-devotion are enough to save a church or a nation. God, grant that we may see these hopes this day realized, and that such true servants of Christ, endowed with the spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind, may renew the strength of our rulers. Let us assist, then, by our prayers and the consecration of three men to God's special service today, Of two of them I will say only that they have both served God zealously, one by labor of heart and brain, and the other by that training which will best fit him for a self-denying work. Of the third I dare not speak more directly of those who have known and loved him from early youth, and how many of us here longed for the sake of England and of England's church that he should occupy the very post which, in God's providence, he has now been called." May the Lord of all strength and power, the author and giver of every good gift, strengthen and perfect them, one and all, and so make them the means of strength and perfection to the Church of Christ, through the help of Jesus Christ, our Savior.
2: I said at the top of the episode, this is kind of a two for one, because as you, I'm sure as you listen to the sermon, this is in itself a, a splendid sermon. And when I think of Wade Sterling, who was there being consecrated that day, I'm sure as the bis- bishop of such a large area, there were many small issues that could have distracted Wade Sterling and things he could have gotten bogged down with. Hearing the stories of those who had failed to the people of Tierra del Fuego could have also scared him off from going there in the first place. But I'm sure remembering that the gospel was central to all is what sent him into Tierra del Fuego. And after he was consecrated and heard the sermon, as he's running those islands and helping bring missionary zeal to that area, I'm sure it was that constant drumbeat of the gospel is central to the duty of a pastor that kept him going.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive. Today's episode was narrated by Seth Moore. Reverend Seth Moore has been in pastoral ministry since 2009. Seth and his wife of 18 years, Vanessa, live in beautiful Nova Scotia.
2: As we said at the top of the show, this episode has a book giveaway. Just as a reminder, share this episode on social media. You'll be entered into a chance to win our BB Warfield Savior of the World at the book and next week's episode on BB Warfield, you'll get to find out if you won. This is Troy Angel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
0: hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.